Welcome to our exchanges at Goldman Sachs Markets update for Friday, October 2nd. Each week, we check in with a leader across the firm to get a quick take on what he or she is watching in markets. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Aaron Riley of the Markets Coverage Group in our private wealth management business. We last had Aaron on the show in February, late February, which uh, seems like a lifetime ago, really was a lifetime ago. Aaron was actually the first podcast guest to talk about coronavirus, and obviously that was a different world than the one we're Zooming from today. Today, we'll get Aaron's take on key issues on the minds of her clients, from market volatility to the upcoming presidential election in the U.S., to the post-vaccine economy, and much, much more. Welcome back, Aaron. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So when you were on in February, you talked about how you were watching the VIX, which is a measure of volatility as the coronavirus situation around the world started to worsen. That index had shot above 35 at the time and proceeded to climb above 80 in March, which is an elevated number, to say the least, the highest since the financial crisis. What's happened to the VIX since and what can we read into that? So it was certainly a very different world when we last spoke. New York was several weeks away from the lockdown and terms like social distancing, self-isolating, and N95 were barely in our vocabulary. The market was just starting to sound some alarm bells, but the world was still operating in a relatively normal fashion. So when we taped, the VIX was in the mid-30s, and the S&P was around 2950. Despite all that has happened since, today the VIX is actually lower in the mid-20s, and the S&P is higher in the high 3300s. So if we had spent the last seven months on a desert island not looking at the news, which might have been preferable, at first glance, we might look at the stock market today and assume that not much had happened. And as we all know, this has been a year of extraordinary economic and social disruption. And the stock market's ability to weather and recover from that has been truly remarkable. In terms of what we can read into this, I keep thinking about that Donald Rumsfeld quote about known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. I think 2020 has taught or at least reminded all of us something about the unknown unknowns and the inherent unpredictability that can sometimes come into markets and life. And as investors brace themselves for the rest of 2020, I think we're now in an environment characterized much more by known unknowns. And what I mean by that is, We've spent the last seven months obsessively processing risks around coronavirus, the upcoming U.S. election, and government support. And as a result, the market has just become much more familiar with and prepared for the very unique challenges of this year, which explains in part why the stock market has experienced such a huge recovery and the VIX has moved lower since we last spoke. Of course, low rates, government stimulus, and retail buying have been added tailwinds. With that said, the VIX does remain far above levels that we would consider normal. In the mid-20s, it's about 10 points above its average for the preceding five years, which tells us that uncertainty is still quite high. So, Aaron, with markets having recovered, what's on the mind of investors and what are they thinking about next as they look at their portfolios? So, investor horizons have changed a lot in the last six months The questions that we're getting have shifted from what's going to happen next week to how will the world look next year and beyond that. Uncertainty is now more centered on longer term, more philosophical questions. And I'll walk through some examples. 
clients that I speak to are questioning the consequences of ultra low rates and significant fiscal stimulus. The rate environment is also calling into question the viability of a traditional 60-40 stocks versus bond portfolio and has clients thinking about how they should protect gains and maintain upside given very limited return opportunities outside of equities. Lastly, there are just a lot of deeply existential questions about what segments to the economy will remain permanently changed by the pandemic. We've observed rents declining in dense cities as people move to the suburbs, temporary layoffs becoming permanent in areas like retail that have trouble navigating an increasingly digital world, and employers' increasing flexibility around work from home, where some surveys tell us that the number of full workdays performed at home will roughly triple in the post-pandemic economy. To illustrate how these questions are influencing long-term market expectations, the S&P one-year straddle, which means the cost of an at-the-money put and call, currently costs about 19%. That means market participants expecting 19% move higher or lower over the next one year. In a normal environment, that levels around 13%. So what that means is while the current level of the equity market paints a picture of a pretty rosy recovery, the derivatives market is reminding us that caution is still above normal levels. It's been a very wild year to say the least, and it has raised a lot of questions that are still quite unresolved. So speaking of unresolved, we're about a month out from the U.S. election, and we had our first presidential debate this week. If you can call that a debate, I don't know what it was exactly. How are your clients positioning themselves to the election and and the aftermath? So before the pandemic commanded the world's attention, the U.S. election was the main market event my clients were focused on this year. Now I would say it's one of the two remaining milestones investors are watching for, the other being a potential vaccine announcement. And after what was a very chaotic debate, to say the least, on Tuesday evening between President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, the short-term market reaction to the debates showed polls in favor of a Biden win by about seven percentage points. In terms of how the stock market could react on election day, options are pricing in volatility going higher, roughly a 3.6% one-day move for the S&P 500. Importantly, Options are also telling us that there could be higher volatility in the weeks following the election. That's because of increased mail-in ballot use, which could mean it takes longer than normal to determine the election results. Interestingly, the expected use of mail-in ballots differs hugely between the right and the left. Some surveys suggest 11% of Trump supporters plan to vote by mail versus 47% of Biden supporters. And to capture this extended period of uncertainty, we've seen a number of clients initiating hedging strategies with tenors beyond the November election date. In addition, while I would say that clients that I speak to are skeptical about the reliability of polls, given the surprising outcome of 2016, they are focused on understanding what a democratic policy agenda could mean for S&P 500 earnings. And to take a step back on where we are from a valuation standpoint, The S&P market multiple is expensive by historical standards. It has been cheaper 90% of the time historically. The bulls contend that this is sustainable because of the current period of low inflation and low rates, but bears argue that a decline in earnings due to policy enacted post-election 
could strain a multiple that's already pretty high. One potential policy outcome that could lower earnings is corporate tax reform. So Biden has proposed lifting the domestic corporate statutory tax rate to 28% from 21%. And GS Research has estimated that this tax plan could reduce S&P earnings next year by roughly 9%. However, offsetting that, one policy item that could increase earnings is fiscal expansion. Biden's plan includes $7 trillion in expenditure that includes COVID-related stimulus as well as infrastructure spending. With all of this in mind, investors are spending a lot of time on themes for the post-election world. So sectors potentially at risk from a higher tax rate are communication services, healthcare, and infotech, whereas sectors that could benefit from fiscal expansion are areas like infrastructure and clean energy. Now, recent performance of these channels of the market has been somewhat mixed, which tells us the market is still fairly on the fence regarding what it anticipates for November. And ultimately, we just may not have visibility in early November on the election outcome or the resulting policy. It's likely to take longer. So you mentioned beyond the election, the other main factor people were watching is the vaccine and the outlook for a vaccine. Are investors focused on the second wave right now, which we're experiencing at some, at some level in the U.S. and Europe, or are they already looking beyond that to a vaccine and the aftermath of that? So regarding a second wave, investors are definitely monitoring coronavirus data, which has become more worrisome recently. As an example, the daily positive test rate in New York exceeded 3% a couple of days ago for the first time since June. That, alongside the absence of certainty on a next leg of a stimulus, is very concerning. However, the question my clients are most focused on right now is how and when to position for a post-vaccine world. This is because while the equity market has recovered all of its COVID-19 losses, it remains massively bifurcated under the surface. On the one side, you've got a market that has rewarded technology stocks this year in a big way. The five biggest stocks in the S&P, which are Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook, are up 40% year-to-date on average. The other side has been left in the dust. We've seen significant underperformance of cyclical equities, particularly energy and financials, which are down 50% and 20% respectively. So there are essentially two economies trading, which suggests that the market remains very skeptical of any semblance of a return to normal. A lot of clients that I speak to are still constructive on growth technology stocks, which particularly owes to the low rate environment and the acceleration in trends ignited by stay-at-home orders. But low valuation stocks now trade at their largest discount to high valuation since the tech bubble. And tactically, many clients think at some point this gap simply needs to converge. So we're seeing focus on the rotation trade that could happen whenever a vaccine is announced. That could translate to better economic growth, potentially higher earnings, rising inflation, and a higher and steeper yield curve. In terms of where we are in that process, the majority of super forecasters expect there to be enough doses of an FDA-approved COVID-19 vaccine to inoculate 25 million people sometime at the beginning of next year. In terms of how to trade that, what we're seeing is that certain value sectors like food and beverages exhibit very high positive correlation with rising vaccine probabilities. 
There are also other areas of the economy that are still deeply depressed versus pre-pandemic levels that could be well positioned for a catch-up. Those are segments like transportation, sports, hotels, restaurants, hospitals. We are having a lot of fascinating conversations on the desk right now about what return to normal will look like in a post-vaccine world, what will snap back to normal, and what may simply never be the same. So last time you were on, we talked a little bit about gold, and gold outperformed as uncertainty kind of crept into the market. What are you seeing with gold now, and what other hedges are investors using, particularly with interest rates really at rock bottom? Gold absolutely continues to get a lot of attention. It was around 1600 an ounce when we last spoke, and it then went on to hit an all-time high in August. And while it's backed off those levels in part due to the lack of progress on government stimulus, still up over 20% year-to-date in the high 1800s context. The reason clients are focused here is because gold can perform well in fear-driven environments. And many see it as a potential beneficiary in the event of increased stimulus, dovish policy, and U.S. dollar weakness. While some would consider it a hedge as the market starts to price in inflation risk, our investment strategy group has found that gold actually has quite an unstable correlation with core inflation, and equities have more consistently outperformed. For investors who are focused on long-term protection, should we experience a late-cycle inflation overshoot, we've seen focus shift towards hard assets, especially those that are income-producing, financial assets, and operating assets. With regard to other hedges, one theme that has been resonating for cautious investors is callers on single stocks, which means selling a call to buy a put. Through the summer, what we saw was a huge uptick in buying volume of short-dated call options, particularly in popular retail technology stocks, which made collaring relatively attractive for investors who were looking to lock in gains in those names. Taking a bigger step back, protecting portfolios against drawdowns is a real struggle for investors right now. In the first quarter, a 60-40 stock bond portfolio experienced one of its largest drawdowns since the 1960s. So we have very recent scarring evidence that traditional fixed income is not always functional as a hedge. And this is especially a challenge in the current low rate environment and probably partially explains why we have observed money market outflows of close to $200 billion in the last seven weeks alone. So Aaron, what does the trading desk feel like? How are interactions with your colleagues, how they've changed during the pandemic, and have you found some creative ways to connect? It has probably been the most interesting year of my career on the trading desk. Trading desks thrive on information flow. They're fast-paced, they're loud, they're very team-oriented, and our clients rely on us being in that environment so that we can be their eyes and ears in the market. And it was frankly shocking in a good way to learn that it was possible for this to function remotely, let alone in one of the most volatile markets in history. So to stay connected, my team has been using Zoom a little bit like a walkie-talkie. We leave an audio line on all day so we can talk to one another and share information real time. And with clients, my desk has done a lot of Zooming for virtual roundtables, conferences, investment discussions, that sort of thing. And more recently, some distanced socializing, such as outdoor dining and bike riding. Monday was actually my first day back physically in the office in New York. And it was really great to see my colleagues who've kind of become my work family over the years. Although things have changed, we're sitting every other desk now, distancing in place. 
But reflecting on the last six months, I'm also very grateful for some of the silver linings of working remotely. I spent part of June in Zion with my sister hiking in the evenings after work in some really beautiful areas of the country that I wouldn't otherwise have gotten to visit this year. I love that part of the world. Outside of your day job, aside from hiking, you're a certified yoga instructor and you've been working with our wellness team here on meditations for the Women's Network. Talk a little bit about how that came about. What's your vision for how meditation and mindfulness can help employees stay healthy and productive, not just during the pandemic, but hopefully in brighter days ahead? Thank you so much for asking. So I became a yoga instructor about four years ago through a 200-hour teacher training at a studio in Manhattan. And as part of that training, I somewhat unintentionally became a practitioner of yoga philosophy, which was put into writing over 2,000 years ago and is really rooted in meditation and mindfulness. For me, practicing mindfulness has been truly transformative, both personally and professionally. On the more concrete side of things, I've discovered it's a tool to habituate the brain for joy, being present, and working more effectively. And at a more spiritual level, it's a path, which is not always an easy one, of knowing oneself better. My next step here is to learn a type of meditation called Vipassana on a 10-day silent retreat at the end of the month. Here at Goldman, I've been truly amazed by how mindfulness has opened doors to connect with a lot of people in all regions of the firm who are also exploring this interest and finding it very helpful to them in environments such as the one we're in currently. During the lockdown, I was very grateful to work with Goldman Wellness to arrange a couple of virtual meditations for the firm-wide women's network on a scale that probably wouldn't have been possible in an in-person environment. My hope and vision, which I think many at the firm share, is to continue building community, and contributing to open dialogue around mindfulness and its role in the workplace. I think we are really just getting to the inflection point there. You know, it's interesting. A lot of CEOs that we've had on recently have talked about this topic and been very open about their conversion, as it were. So, Erin, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's Markets Update on Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. In case you missed it, Check out our other podcast this week with Matt McClure, co-head of our Global Industrials Group in the Investment Banking Division, on how that sector has been innovating throughout the pandemic and what kind of deal activity he's seeing in airlines, cruise lines, autos, and more. Spoiler alert, we did not talk about meditation with Matt. Thanks for listening and hope everyone has a great weekend. This podcast was recorded on Thursday, October 1st, 2020. Thank you very much for listening. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.